If you're a first-time visitor to First Baptist Ozark, then I want to kind of catch you up that in the body of Christ here at our church, we've been preaching and teaching on the subject of worship. And we began in John chapter 4, and we learned that our God is on a mission to transform idolatrous and broken people and make them into worshipers. Uh, God is on a mission to do that, and so no matter who you are, what you've done, the grace of God is sufficient to save your soul. And He can transform anybody, anywhere, anytime. And we also learned that there are some stipulations when it comes to worship. You must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, and we spent a Sunday talking about that. can't worship God any way you want to, regardless of what the world says, There are some biblical uh, principles that are given to us in the Word regarding that. And although the text says the Father seeks true worshipers, He adds in, but those who worship must worship Him in spirit and in truth, meaning you've got to be born of the Spirit of God, and then you have to worship Him according to how the Word of God reveals God to us. And then we had a wonderful time preaching and teaching on music. And we learned that we're going to honor God in this church by singing songs written in the past and the present. Because the Spirit of God worked in the past and He works in the present, right? We're going to honor our God. That's why we're intentionally blended at this church because we think we ought to honor the Lord. And last week we talked about what's in the Bible. Can anybody stand up and tell me what I preached? Yeah, what's in the Bible? What is the Bible? Well, we know that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and wholly sufficient Word of God. And we also learn that it does some things. It shows you the right way to live, disciplines you in the paths of righteousness. It equips you to actually be what God would have you to be. So what is it to worship in spirit and truth? Well, we gather together in this church, we lift our voices like we've just done, right? We pray to our God, and in those things, we are speaking to our God and praising Him. But when it comes to the preaching of the Word, God is speaking to you. So in a worship service, we speak to Him. Yes, we do. We should. We should praise His name. But I want you to know that God speaks to you when the Word of God is opened, and we read the Word, and we preach the Word. So preaching the Word is an act of worship. And you receiving the Word is also an act of worship. How this book is preached and how you receive it, they're both acts of worship. Now, there are some other things we do in the church that we might call occasional acts of worship. And if you're visiting today and you think, son, this sounds somewhat academic, it won't always be that way when I preach, okay? But when we're trying, I've been here a month and a half, and I'm trying to get the church to understand the things that they do and why. We're, we're so oblivious to why we do certain things. It's just formalistic and ritualistic, and we have no idea why we do things, why we do what we do. And furthermore, there are a lot of churches out there, so-called churches, that don't do the things we do, and we have to say, well, who's right? Oh, what is going on today? What is the mode of baptism? I mean, why baptism? Why the Lord's Supper? Those things sound somewhat archaic. Why would we do things like that? Well, we do it because this is what this book tells us to do. Right? This is our sole authority. Get this. This is what we believe in faith and practice. So we have to find out why we do certain things. 
And so there are two occasional acts of worship that we participate in at this church. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I know this may sound elementary to some of you. For some of you it may sound somewhat academic. But we're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper as acts of worship. Please get that today. That's what those things are. They're acts of worship. In water baptism, obviously, it's going to follow a profession of faith, right? Now listen to what the Word of God has to say about it. Don't stand today for the sake of time, but 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, listen to the Word. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God, you'll see it on the PowerPoint. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so in this particular verse, we see highlighted the principle of baptism. And water baptism obviously follows a profession of faith. We know this from the Word and from Acts. In water baptism, the symbol stands in the place of the thing that is signified. And in this case, the reality is, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you fully identify with His life, death, and burial, and resurrection, if you're in Christ Jesus, then you're part of the body of Christ. And baptism stands as a symbol of what has already taken place in your life. It is a symbol that stands for it. You repent, correct? And that repentance is in faith toward the object of our faith, which is not water baptism, but Jesus Christ and Him alone to save our souls. So our, the object of the faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. You confess your loyalty to your new Lord and King. Water baptism, we might call it a metonym. Anybody ever heard of that? Come on, folks. You have. You've heard of a synonym, a different kind of... Well, this baptism, for the, the best way for you to understand that as you read the Word is to think about it in this particular way. What is a metonym? Well, a metonym is a name or a word as a substitute for something else which is closely associated to it. All right, y'all listen. When I say the federal government, what do you think about? Washington, D.C., right? That's called a metonym. You associate federal government, <laughs> good and bad, what's going on up there? You associate federal government with what's going on in Washington. That's what we, well, the same is similar. So it's also important to note that baptism is a metonym. In other words, it is it's in the place of something of significance or something of importance using a different term. So when the word baptism is used in the New Testament, predominantly it's used in that manner to represent something that has already taken place in your life and yet you are standing before witnesses and symbolically showing what has transpired in your life. Does that make sense to everyone? Do I need to repent, repeat all that? Now, not a lesson in English, but these two ordinances were left to the church by Jesus Christ. He gave us two ordinances that we are to partake of, the Lord's Supper and baptism. In the, in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 28, this is what it says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances which have been explicitly and sovereignly instituted by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, 
who has appointed that they be continued in his church until the end of the world. So those two things, baptism and Lord's Supper. You know, we looked at pictures of what took place on September 11, 2001. It, it, was a, it memorializes those things in your mind. Well, I want you to know that baptism and the Lord's Supper are covenant reenactments. They're for a purpose for you to remember. And might I add, it is for you to remember the most important thing that has ever happened to you in your life. Right? That's what those things are. They're covenant reenactments. And obviously, there were several of those given in the Old Testament. But when it comes to these two, they're so vitally important because you're supposed to observe them until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So we don't get to make up how we're going to do these ordinances. We're going to follow what the Bible says. And just think about this for a minute. In the world that we live in, I've actually seen this happen and, and worse things than this, but we don't get to make up baptism. Maybe we can just go out here in the parking lot and let our children slide down a big, long slip and slide and pronounce them baptized as they slide by us in the water. You think that's funny, but that happens. That's what churches do sometimes for the sake of drawing people. Just for the sake of getting a crowd to come to the church. We're going to do baptism in the mode. This week's going to be sliding down a water slide. And when you hit the deep water in the bottom, you're going to get out and you're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Y'all know my Hebrew word for that. Baloney, right? That's not what the Word of God says about it. So these ordinances were given to us by the authority of Christ. Okay, so just two things we're going to do this morning. If time allows, and if it doesn't, well... Time will allow, right? So here's the first thing. Baptism is an act of worship. Okay, write that down. Very simple. Baptism is an act of worship. Consider it from two perspectives. The first one is this. Baptism is an act of worship for the person that is being baptized. Okay? For, it's an act of worship, but first for the person being baptized. The reason it is an act of worship is because it is an act of obedience. So therefore... You, in obedience to the Lord, you're giving, you're giving Him the worth due His name because Jesus ordained baptism, said that we should follow in believers' baptism, set the standard for us in baptism. And so, therefore, the reason it is an act of worship is because it is an act of obedience. In a logical sense, there's an inescapable reality that if you're in Christ Jesus and you've identified with Him then the logical sense is you should be willing to follow in obedience in water baptism. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's a logical progression. Why? Because in baptism you are expressing your faith in Jesus to save you and the faith that you have in Him. So the person being baptized is saying to the Lord, in an act of obedience, I'm going to go down in this water and I'm going to do this. Why? Because I'm expressing that I have union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is my Master and my Savior. And I'm willing to follow Him. And by all means, if you're really saved and you've submitted your life to Jesus, then baptism ought to be something you willingly do as the first act of obedience. True worship is what? It's a celebration of being in a covenant relationship. And in covenant fellowship with a sovereign and holy God. So here is this person. And you're saying, I'm here today to be baptized in worshipful obedience to the God 
that I belong to. That's what, that's what baptism is. Now, baptism is also a picture of God's saving grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ and His work in you as a believer. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. If you can't turn there fast enough, just listen to the word. Chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, verse 26. The Bible says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, do you note the identification there? Baptism is representative of the fact that you have put on Christ. In other words, you have fully identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a celebration. It's a visible picture of your identification with Jesus Christ. Don't you want the world to know that? Don't you want people to witness the fact that you're willing to identify with Jesus Christ? Not a secret service Christian, but you're willing to identify with Jesus. Did you notice how the passage we read brought this to light in verse 13? Listen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks or slaves are free. And so the person is baptized. And it is an expression of the fact that that person and that individual is a recipient of God's saving grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an expression as well of the unity, not only with Christ, but the unity that we have together as a body of believers. Did you note that in the text? We're all, we all have a diversified uh, portfolio. We're, we're all different, but we're all brought together in our identification with Jesus. And thus, baptism does that for us. Because all of us, if you're in Christ Jesus, should have already followed in believer's baptism after that. And it signifies the identification that we have together. It reminds me of Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. You ever read that book? That glorious little historical book, Ruth? When uh, she is going to cling to her mother-in-law, Naomi, what does Ruth say? Your God is my God, and your people shall be my people. Well, it's similar in baptism. It is an expression of people joining themselves. It is an expression of, of you joining yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ as a spiritual baptized body of believers. Now, there's some heresies going on out in the world about baptism. One of uh, a person I went to school with actually wrote a paper on why baptism is irrelevant today and we should not baptize. Needless to say, in an SBC school, he got a lot of red marks on his paper, and he should have. But I'm telling you, folks, it's very important that we understand what baptism is. And furthermore, there's baptisms that go on in Utah every day in the Mormon tabernacle. And it's called baptism of the dead. You can be baptized by proxy. And the person who's already dead can either accept or reject your baptism in the stead of them. And you might even gain heaven from that in the kingdom of God. The problem with that is it's not taught anywhere in our sacred scriptures. It's a heresy by them. And check this one out. This one really hurts my feelings. On May 15, 1959, a woman was baptized in the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City. She was not baptized for herself, but by proxy for a well-known deceased woman. The priest said, I lay hands on you on behalf 
of Charlotte Diggs Moon, who is dead. That hurts my feelings. Because you know who that is? That's Lottie Moon. That's Lottie Moon, of which we take our Christmas offering up and give to foreign missions. And Lottie served as a missionary in China for over 40 years, and she died of starvation after she had come to tell those Chinese people about the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. She whispered as she died the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. And she died on Christmas Eve in 1912. But the gospel she shared was not based on some kind of baptismal waters of a Mormon church, but upon the salvation that comes by faith through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. So not everything out there today, folks, that they call baptism is scriptural baptism. What we believe scriptural baptism is, is identification with the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. And it's the unification of this body in union together as a baptized body of believers. So baptism is an act of worship for the person who is baptized. But, but secondly, baptism is actually an act of worship for the body of Christ in witnessing the individual. We did that the other day with Eli's baptism, right? We, we baptized him. He went under the water and came back up. It was, a, it was an act of worship for him, but also the body of Christ watching it. We celebrate the nature of God being implanted into that young boy by the grace of God. And we're all watching and witnessing this. And I love for children to watch baptism. Why? Because baptism is a witness, a visible witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the gospel made visible when people go under the water, buried with Christ... Your judgment has been taken care of in Christ Jesus, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. That's what happens on the inside when you meet Jesus Christ. So when we see baptism, we see a picture that a new family member has come into the family. Amen? Amen. Are y'all glazing over like a donut? Are y'all with me? Right? That's what we're seeing. Here's another sinner that's been saved by grace. That's why we witness it. Another sinner has been brought into the body, into the family. Now get this straight. Water baptism does not effect salvation. Water baptism expresses salvation. You're going to find your way to hell if you believe that any work can save you. You're not saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. And if you think it is baptismal waters that saves you, folks... What is that? That be, well, on your part would be a work to get it. You're not saved by water baptism. Baptism expresses a salvation that has already taken place. This is part of worship. We watch this occur. But we're witnesses as we see someone baptized. Think about this for a moment. In the Old Testament, the witnesses actually help enforce covenant stipulations. They actually stood by as witnesses to make sure that the people, both parties with their obligations, with the parties involved. So God, even at times, calls upon heaven and earth to be His witness, right? Or Himself, they're making a covenant, right? So God is calling on heaven and earth. We need people who actually take this seriously, right? Because we come into the body, someone is baptized, and we're witnesses to their commitment to Christ. That we're a body of believers and we're going to see them baptized and thus we're going to say, you know what? 
you've made a public testimony of your faith in Christ. Now live the life. We're going to pray for you. We're witnesses that you have given your life to Jesus and you've made it public through baptismal waters and we're here to be your accountability partners. Amen? Amen. Right? We're here to make sure uh, and to witness to the fact that we're going to come alongside you and we're going to encourage you. Folks, both of these are acts of worship. The person who is being baptized and the people who are witnessing it. So, as witnesses, we celebrate that our great God and Savior has worked in this individual's life. It's okay to clap when somebody comes up out of that water. It's quiet in here. There ought to be joyful expression. That's something to clap about. A sinner has been saved prior to getting in those waters, and they're getting into the water to identify the fact that Jesus saves. It's okay. There ought to be some hearty, Amen! When somebody comes up out of the water, I woke some of you up, right? There's nothing wrong with that kind of joyful expression instead of just sitting there like, yeah, another one got dunked today. <laughs> or they come walking out of the back, hair sure is messed up. Must not have brought a, brought a comb with them and were worried about all those things. No, folks, in the olden days, people would come down into the baptismal water with old tattered clothes on or whatever, and they would exit the other side, and they would bring them out in a white robe. That's what it's picturing, right? That you were dead in trespasses and sin, but Jesus Christ washed you with his blood, not that water. And when you come out on the other side, you come out transformed by the grace of God, right? You're white-robed, uh, metaphorically speaking, because Jesus Christ has made you acceptable before the Father. That's something we ought to rejoice in. It's okay to clap your hands. So, I would be negligent if I didn't say to you, if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've never been baptized, you need to obey God. Amen. You need to submit your life to the King that you say you love and follow. Emphasis added. Amen? If you say you belong to Him and He's your Lord and Savior, then I would be negligent if I didn't tell you. I would be wrong as a preacher. But I'm going to be right here. You need to follow in believer's baptism if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I'll add this. I don't care if you're 10 or 110. Amen. Come on. I can get you in that water, and I bet you I can get you out. Amen? <laughs> All right? So look, baptism, so vitally important. You don't want to disobey the Lord of glory who died in your stead, in your behalf, to procure your salvation. You want to follow in believer's baptism. Why? Because God is worthy to be worshipped. And this is the way Jesus wants to be worshipped. Right? It's a picture to us. Now, set that aside. And let's talk about the Lord's Supper for a moment. Notice, same chapter, excuse me, same book, different chapter. Back up to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 17. And listen to these words regarding the Lord's Supper. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people... Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Amen. All right, that's the Lord's Supper. Let me share a few things about it. Baptism is an act of worship. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship. In at least three ways. It's an act of worship in remembrance of Christ. As you partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an act of worship. 
And we are obediently remembering through the supper what Jesus Christ did for us. Where do we get these words from? Well, just example for the sake of time, Mark chapter 14, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he took the cup, which is significant in many ways of the new covenant in his blood, and he commanded his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. Now, folks, this is not a divine suggestion. It's not maybe once every five years you should take communion. I'm grieved sometimes and thinking and praying about how little we actually do partake of the Lord's Supper. Because, folks, that's a direct command by Jesus. Do this. Y'all got that? And we see it on the tables we have around, right? Do this in remembrance of me. So Lord, the Lord's Supper is so vitally important. I'm going to preach more on that tonight before we partake of it. But it's so important. When his disciples gather together and they partake of that meal, it's a meal whereby we recall what Jesus Christ has done for us in our salvation. Just as the Israelites coming out of Egypt sat around the table and observed the Passover, and the fathers of the family would stand up and they would teach the children and their children about the great and mighty acts of God out of the Exodus, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are called together to regularly eat this meal in a memorial Remembering the mighty acts of Christ on the cross of Calvary where he saved you from your sins. And where he came forth from the grave. And where he ascended to the right hand of the Father, right? Where he is ever coming again. We know those things, don't we? So, is there any greater love that has ever been displayed than for the Son of God to leave the confines of his eternal home in glory and condescend to this earth and put on flesh and blood like you have? Is there any greater display of love that has ever taken place? Is there? We're going to study that at Christmas and hopefully like you've never seen it before. But we're going to think about the fact that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. That through his poverty, you might become rich. Amen? Amen. When was he ever rich? Well, he was when he was in heaven on his eternal throne. When did he become poor? When he became like me and you. And why did he do this? So that he might give you eternal life and make you rich. Not in the things of the world, but of spiritual life. There's never been a greater display of love than for him to come down from heaven and voluntarily pay the penalty that you deserve to pay for your sin, and yet he paid it all. That's the love that he gave to us. So, is this not a reflection of our own weakness for him to have to say to us, do this in remembrance of me. I mean, I'm, my mind is boggled at that point that he would have to tell them that you need to do this in remembrance of me. It's a reflection of our weakness. It's a reflection of our own sinfulness. And we're prone to wonder, Lord, prone to leave the God that we love. We need to ask God to take our heart and seal it to his courts above, right? We're prone to leave the Lord. So there are repeated calls through Scripture that we continually remind we're continually reminded to do these things so that we, under, we, we don't neglect those things because they're important. And folks, nothing is singularly more important in your life than the fact that Jesus Christ saved your soul. Amen. That is the most important thing, so it ought to be a priority. When we gather tonight, we're doing so as an act of worship. And we're celebrating our triune God that we sang about as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're remembering the life, death, burial, and resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a remembrance, but it's also a proclamation of his death. Listen to 11.26 of 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's a proclamation of his death. Again, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ made visible. That's why, we, that's why God asked us to do it. We can get so familiar with grape juice or the fruit of the vine or the crackers that are broken up inside of these uh, plates. We get so familiar with those things uh, that it loses its significance on our lives. Now think about this. When you're partaking of it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. As you hold up that cup tonight in your hand, you're holding up the symbol of Christ actually drinking that cup of wrath on your behalf. When's the last time you thought about that? That the Holy Father mixed and measured the ingredients of that cup. And in that cup was all the wrath to be poured out on sinners like you and me. But the Son of God absorbed every bit of that wrath upon Himself. Bearing your sin on Calvary's cross, taking it to the cross... You deserve to be crucified. You deserve the wrath of God. Yet Jesus became your sacrificial lamb. Jesus took your place. And when you hold up that cup, you're holding up the very symbol that Jesus was willing to take that wrath in your place. Think about that for a moment. We're just so haphazardly coming to the church and we go through the motions and we laugh and we pass the stuff around. We have no idea what we're celebrating. We don't. Look, folks, it's the symbol that Jesus himself took the wrath that you deserved. That's awesome, is it not? And by, by virtue of drinking the cup, you're making a proclamation that Jesus bore the wrath that you deserved. And that's why we tell people, if you're lost, don't take of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because when you partake of it, you're actually saying, Lord, you, you took the wrath that I deserved. You know, you're, you're, you're putting that first-person pronoun in front of Savior, right? My Savior, right? You're, you're saying that you are my personal Savior. And if He has not taken your wrath, the sin that, the wrath that was due you, if He hasn't paid for your sin, then there's no reason and no way that you should be taking of the Lord's Supper. He did it in my place through the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of His blood. I don't think it's a good thing to trifle with the wrath of God. I really don't. This is my blood, Jesus said, of the new covenant which is poured out for the sins of many. You're holding up that very symbol of the ratification of the new covenant. You're holding up the very symbol of being sealed and forgiven by the blood of Christ, guaranteed through His grace. When you hold up that bread in your hand, it is representative of the incarnation of the Son of God. God is invisible, but Jesus Christ has made Him visible. He's the incarnate God who came down to this earth. When you hold that up, that's what you're talking about. The second person of the Godhead who made this very world, put on human flesh and was born in Bethlehem for you. And when you hold up that cracker, that's what you're saying. You're identifying the fact that God came down to this earth to save sinners. You're also making a proclamation to the people around you. You recognize that it is through the body and blood of Christ alone that you are made right with God. Did you hear it in those words? My one defense. Righteousness of God. You have no defense before a holy God unless it is righteousness. 
And the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. You have no chance. You don't have a hallelujah chance of heaven if you're going to stand before God in your own righteousness. Because your righteousness on your best day is as of filthy rags before the Lord. Habakkuk says that God's eyes are so pure he cannot even look upon sin. Thus, you need a mediator. You need Jesus. You need his righteousness. Why? Because when he died on Calvary, he wasn't making a sacrifice for his sin. He had no sin. He was making a sacrifice for your sin. Right? He knew no sin and became sin for us. So, please consider this. When you take of the Lord's Supper, you're doing it in remembrance of Him, in proclamation of His death, that I am right with God, that the Lamb of God has washed my sin away, forgiven me. I am accepted before Him. I've been declared righteous in the sight of God. Jesus Christ died, and He died for me. That's what you're saying. And thirdly, finally, it's an act of worship in communion with Christ and His people. Where does the word communion come from? Well, let me show you. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 16. The Bible says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That's the word. It's the word communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? So, there is a partnership in this body. There's communion going on in this building. Right? And it's made possible through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the fact that you've identified with Him. The Holy Spirit of God ministers to us through this supper. The old Puritan once said, It is in the bread and the cup that the Spirit of God brings to us afresh the kiss of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so important, so true. Now these are elements. That's what they are. When we partake of them tonight, understand there's nothing holy in that grape juice. There's nothing holy in that wafer. We don't believe in transubstantiation. That means that when you pick those up, it's literally the blood and flesh of Christ. Catholicism believes that. That's not true. No disciple when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, would have eaten Jesus literally right there. Is that not true? And we don't believe in consubstantiation. We don't believe that when you partake of it and drink it or eat it, it becomes blood and his flesh. We don't believe that. What we believe is that it is a memorial. It is a reenactment. But we do believe the Spirit of God is at work. Right? He is working in us as we partake of these. It is our... It is your participation in the benefits of the sacrifice. Think about this. When you ingest... The bread, you're saying Jesus Christ is mine. Hallelujah. When you drink the drink of the contents, you're saying, you know, know, it becomes part of you. You ingest it, and you're saying, God, I'm in union with you through your Son. I'm saved by grace through faith. We also commune with each other. This is not a privatized ordinance, is it? We do it together as a body. It's a symbol of the oneness that we have. Folks, there's only one salvation. Y'all listening? There's only one salvation, and it's in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's what we're saying. There's only one Christian life, just one. There's only one Savior and one source of life. And we all stand side by side or sit side by side when we partake of this supper. Why? Because we're saying there's only one Christ. There's only one salvation. Amen? That's what we're doing as the people 
of God. We enjoy it side by side. When we pass the plates tonight, we're passing it one to another. We're serving one another. Why? Because we are in one flesh, one faith, one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who we are. I am with you, and you are with me. We are one in the bond of love. He has joined us together with His Spirit, and in participating with the Lord's Supper, that's what we're saying. We're expressing our unity of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Now get this one straight. In 1 Corinthians 11, some people were dying in the church. Some were sick, and some, the Greek word is nekros. That's a scary word in the Greek. It means you're dead. And it was because of the way they were approaching the Lord's table. They were doing it in an unworthy manner. Why? Because it's serious. It is serious for us to think about this. Why? Because you're a body. God forbid that you come in here tonight and partake of the Lord's Supper and you've got ought against your brother in this church. Now I'm meddling, right? Y'all up there in the balcony, y'all awake? Right? Amen. You're waving at me. Good deal. Think about this. It's also a diagnostic feast where you examine yourself. Are you right with everybody in this church body? Got some sins you need to confess up on before tonight? Old preacher used to say, well, fess up. Right? It's true. Because we want to come in here tonight with no odd against our brother. Having made all those things right before God. And you can do that quickly. Don't avoid the Lord's Supper. Get your heart right with the Lord. That's what it's for. It's for you to evaluate your own life before the Lord before you partake of it. Read 1 Corinthians 11 before you come in here tonight. All right, in conclusion. I talked about the being in the bond of love. Do you know that the fellowship you enjoy and the communion that you have here with people of God... Now listen, don't, don't close up on the invitation. Listen. Do you realize that the bonds that you share in this church with fellow believers are going to last for eternity? Amen. Do you all realize that if some of you are tired and bored at this sermon, what are you going to do when you go to heaven? Right? I mean, the fact is we're, we're one in the bond of love. And do you realize... That one day, the bonds that are actually forged on earth through flesh and blood that unite us together because we're cousins, brothers, sisters, they're not going to be there anymore. There's going to be an eternal parting of the ways. Some of your own flesh and blood will not be in eternity with you. Have you all ever thought about that? And it grieves us. We want them to come to know Jesus Christ. But there's something that will always bind us together in this body of believers for all eternity. That is much, much greater than anything you share on this earth in flesh and blood. It will be none other than the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. That will bind us together forever. The bond that is deeper and more significant that surpasses any bond that flesh and blood can have from the fruit of the womb, is the bond that we share in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, to some of you in this church, this is your family. Right? There's that bond in Jesus Christ. And there are people in this bond that love Jesus Christ all over this world. From every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, we share an eternal bond with them because of what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. And this bond is going to last forever. It'll never be broken. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're representing the ties that's going to bind us together for all eternity. 
The body and blood of Christ. That's what unifies us for all eternity. So, in conclusion, baptism is an act of worship. Amen? Amen. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship. And in both of these, the gospel of Jesus Christ is made visible to us. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, I know the hour is late, but Lord, your word is so much more important. I know we say that flippantly, but it's so much more important than anything else on the agenda for the day. And God, I pray that you would seal this message in our hearts. Lord, I know some of it was difficult. God, you process it. It's your word. And Lord, I pray you would affect change in people's lives. Perhaps there's someone under the the preaching of the word today, and they're thinking about baptism, but they've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. God, would you interrupt them? Lord, would you speak to them through your spirit? And Father, I pray that the light would turn on in their spirit to know that they've sinned against you and that their sin separates them from you. And Father, would you call them to yourselves? And Lord Jesus, would you save them before it is everlastingly too late? Would you convict them of their sin? And would, by your spirit, would you draw them into yourself? And Lord, for Christians, I pray we would get a renewed focus on the fact that baptism and the Lord's Supper are both acts of worship before you. Father, bless the invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.